Guys, good morning. Um, we've got uh, a bit to get through. I'm going to give you a brief recap where we've been at, uh, but you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We'll rewind a couple of verses, and then we'll move forward even a few more to get to uh, verse 10 this morning, and we'll be talking about what it means to serve as, as your life's work. So here's the, here's the brief connection of events so that uh, everybody's on the same page. Uh, when we, we started uh, at the beginning of chapter 6, where the disciples are increasing, uh, the temptation was presented to maybe forsake uh, the ministry of the word and prayer, uh, but because things are prioritized correctly, the apostles say we can't forsake this ministry, and so they commit to that being the, the primary thing. And uh, because of that, there's some other people that must be obligated. I don't know what title you might have over chapter 6, but mine says seven are chosen to serve. And so that seems to be the highlight of what's going on in the church. Well, we, we made uh, the point over the last uh, three weeks, I guess now, that uh, Jesus is the head of the church. Your connectedness to him is, is everything. Your submission to him is everything. You can produce nothing without him. And um, so, th- so that's important, but we are uh, made an illustration of a body, a human working body. And um, so the, the working of the body is in service to, to one another for the glory of God. And so serving God is what we talked about last week. And we talked about like kind of a survey of what is Christian service. If I could try to give like a, a broad scope of what we were saying. And uh, I made this assertion that serving God is life. And there was several reasons I said that because, well, that's, that's what we're obligated to do uh, for any number of reasons. Uh, Jesus served. He's our master. He's our example. If he's the head, uh, we ought to be like him. Uh, Jesus commanded us to serve. He commanded the disciples. So as, as I've done for you, you do for one another. Um, and uh, we are obligated because it's our position in the body and because we have been bought with a price and because worship is service. So because all of those elements exist, I, I made the assertion that serving is life. Well, the question is today, now, if serving is life, if indeed my theme of last week is true. What is the scope of life, right? What is the scope of life? Namely, what do we see in the example of the appointment of these other servants in the church, specifically through the life of one of these servants, that being Stephen, that teaches us how that truth, that serving Christ, serving God is your, your entire life, how, how should that uh, come out in what it is that we are, what it is that we do, how we, how we view um, our task, if you will. So with that being said, um, let's read the, the passage together. I'll pray and uh, we'll get to it. So um, here it is, verse uh, starting in I, 3 is what I have. So we'll rewind just to get a sense of where we're at. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and they laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. Just File that away for just a moment. That's an important detail. A great many priests became obedient to the faith. And then now we get to zoom in on one of those servants being Stephen in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit 
with which he was speaking. Father, we come this morning uh, before your word, asking you to um, do what we cannot do for ourselves, which is to speak life into us, to um, use your word to shape us and to mold us to look like um, your son. We might glorify him by our lives. Thank you for your grace that rescued us and makes something of us more than we can make for ourselves. So Father, ask that you would equip each of us with um, what we need to hear from you this morning. Give us eyes to see your truth, ears to hear your voice and your word, and hearts of flesh that can receive what your spirit would do for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, yes. I want you to know that I gave her, what, now what flavor is it? Is this just straight espresso? I'm, I can probably get done in half the time if I drink this right now. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Stephen, um, we see, is one of the seven that's appointed to this additional task. And uh, this duty and what's happening in his life, uh, we only get a snapshot of it, but it lasts for two chapters. And most of those um, chapters are what Stephen speaks out of his being filled with the spirit and of wisdom. But um, what, uh, what, what is happening in, in uh, how he responds to some opposition and what he's doing in addition to the fact that he's been appointed to serve tables or minister to the tables uh, is something that I think is, bears looking at this morning. So um, we see Stephen showing us what it means to have our full lives in submission to God. Your, your whole life, not just a portion, not just what you do at church, not just your service here, but your entire life. So we look at the example of Stephen, who's appointed to service in the church, and that is not the limitation then of what service means. So if, if you were to try to kind of define what Christian service is, you, you couldn't just point to like, well, it's when I, I do this for the worship to happen in service, or when I go and I visit somebody, or I take somebody a meal, or whatever that is, that, 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 that too narrowly limits the scope. It's whatever it is that you happen to put your hand to should be being done for the Lord. That's, that's a pretty simple way to, to put that. Whatever it is that you are doing should be for uh, God's glory. So um, there's a task which you have been chosen for, which you've been called to, that you are equipped for, that you're gifted for, a task which you are privileged and obligated to participate in. And this is all amounting to the question of what are you doing for stewardship of all of those things I just mentioned. The fact that you've been called, you've been chosen, you've been gifted, you've been equipped, you've been obligated. Like there's all of these things that are pointing to you towards the task. And now what are you doing with holding all of that? What is the stewardship aspect of, um, of your life? And so um, Jesus had a lot to say about working. Uh, if I was just kind of like doing a survey about work, and if, if you just kind of pour over some of maybe the more familiar teachings or some of his parables or even some of the encounters that he has with people, they largely center on what people are doing with their lives. But underneath that is the question of like, what, what are they working towards or why are they working in that way? And uh, just to give you sort of his, his bullet point, you know, Jesus always gave a good um, conclusion statement, and it was always like sort of application. So let me let me read off a few of these to ring some bells maybe in your brain to get you to think about. He really is talking about work when he's talking. To whom much is given, much will be required. The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord uh, of the harvest that he would send more workers. The kingdom will be taken from those who misuse it 
and ignore its purposes and will be given to those who will tend and produce its fruitfulness. Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but work for treasure in heaven. Do not work for the bread that perishes, but work for the bread that gives everlasting life. No man can serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other. Uh, do you hate your master's kindness for paying these other workers uh, the, the fair day's wage? So you can see that's just a, a brief smattering of some of the things that Jesus said sort of at the end of maybe some of his parables or in some of his encounters that Jesus cares about work. Because what we, what we do is what we are. Now, we, we, we sort of push away from that reality. And uh, I, I want to make that um, assertion this morning that what you do is what you are. Okay? And um, now... The reason why we don't like this is because sometimes we, we take jobs be for um, very pragmatic reasons. I needed money. I took this job. It's not what I wanted to do, but it's what I am doing. And so we wouldn't want to necessarily identify ourselves as, you know, I, God bless him. Where's Larry? Okay, he's not in here. You want to go? I, I'm a, I work at McDonald's or something because maybe you don't want people to assume that's what you are. You are a McDonald's worker or something. And uh, this brings up the nature of... Um, a word that we don't use very much, but the word is vocation. Do you guys know what this word means? It's not just a job. It's, it's actually in the word. You can hear at the beginning, vocal, right? Vocation has to do with the idea of being called to something. And, and we use it uh, when we say, that's my vocation. But if you just look up the definition, it means something that you're particularly suited for. Well, why are you suited for it? Well, because it's like a fitted thing. That's what you would be called to. Well, you're called to, to God's service. You're called and obligated in that way, and that's important. So if you are what you do, and you are called to be one of, of God's servants, the question is, how does that marry with this other thing that feels very pragmatic? Well, I must work to, to eat, right? And, um, and, and how are you using that? And regardless of whether it's just your job or you're a stay-at-home mother or whatever it is that you do or you're retired now, what are you doing with your life that is work? Jesus didn't just talk about who do you work for or what, what's your position, but it's what are you doing with, with everything. That amounts to work, right? Everything that you do amounts to work. So for whom or what or why or how much are you working? If you put it under the heading of you're called to work for God and everything that you do is some tangible amount of work for whatever exchange that might be, if you ask this question, then, then the the obligation of your life is going to sort of become paramount here to, well, am I really being faithful in that or am I being really minimally faithful? Am I, am I just only very, 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 very <laughs> intermittently being faithful? If I um, said, using this analogy of the body because uh, it's helpful, if I said, you know, I have, uh, I have these arms and they have muscles on them and everything, really big, defined Muscle and I have I have legs and they can carry me. I can run fast, but um, about once a week for an hour is uh, how how much I can use them. They don't they don't work every 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 other time during the week. They don't move. They don't they don't they don't do anything for me. But they twitch a little bit starting around nine thirty on Sunday morning, and then for about an hour they're as good as can be. Okay, is my is my body serving me in a tangible way? No. Is, is, that, is, that, is that a good um, understanding of what it means to be connected to God, connected to the head, which is Christ, and serving him faithfully? Well, of course not. So you understand that. But um, 
there's, there's something that happens in this text, and I think it's meant to point us to the reality that it's not just the fact that these guys were appointed to serve tables, but that Stephen took this calling, this specific calling, within the ministry of the church, and then he pushed it into the fullness of his life. So um, in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, we get uh, a statement about this, I said, you know, there's different metaphors that are given for what we are as a church, and one of those is that we're a building. But even when it uses something that's lifeless like a building, um, Scripture's careful to say, but you're living stones that are being built up. You're, you have life, right? And so in First uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, it says this, you yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up into a spiritual house. And then he says this, to be a holy priesthood. Well, why, why are you being built in this house? For a purpose, to be a priesthood. Why would you be a priesthood? What does that matter? Well, so that you can offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then down in verse 9, it says, you are chosen. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you have, were, had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. So the transition point there is once you receive mercy, you become, if you work it backwards, all of these things. A chosen people, a royal priesthood. And um, I think I said that backwards. No, I didn't. That's right. A chosen people, a royal priesthood. And so um, this becomes important because if you think about what does a priest do? A priest's life is service to God. Is it not? It's not, it's not a uh, one hour on Sunday morning kind of job. It's, it is what you are. You are what you do. So you're a priest unto God. We are, we are chosen by God to serve him as priests. Well, priests also do, besides the fact that they give like tangible service, like doing sacrifices or uh, offering things like that, um, their, their, their position is to represent the people to God and represent the God to people. And uh, that's what you are as Christians, people that are redeemed. You've been given the, the life of Christ and you uh, represent Christ's goodness to one another in the church, and we also represent who Christ is to the world, or who God is to the world, and so we serve this purpose as priests. Here we go again. Sorry, guys. Here we go. So, um, we're called as priests, and we come obedient to this priestly service. So it's interesting here that um, the apostles commit to the prayer and ministry of the word, this task that would have been sort of given to the priests and the Pharisees, and then they appoint these other people uh, who uh, are supposed to minister to the tables, and then it just tags it on the end. As the word of God increased, in verse 7, that there was a great many of priests who became obedient to the faith. And so you think about that, and you realize, why would these priests think they need to add something else? Why would these faithful priests who already serve in the temple, doing whatever it is um, that they uh, were called to do, what they were obligated to do by the law, suddenly think it necessary to become obedient to this faith where these other people are serving? Well, everybody now, uh, the, the, the ground has been flattened, if you will, and now everyone is serving in the priesthood. So Christian service, as uh, if you look at it in terms of the priesthood, is humble giving of all that we do and all that we have to honor God because of what we receive. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a simple way of saying stewardship. It's you've been given something to do something uh, with it and it's to serve others with it. But we tend to kind of wrap our arms around what we've been given and think it's for, our, for ourselves. We serve ourselves with it. So receiving, first of all, is a position of, of humility. You don't receive because you demand uh, and you don't, aren't given a gift because you've earned it. It's something that you're given 
purely out of grace, purely out of mercy, and that's what we are. Once you, were, once you were, were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not known mercy, but now you have mercy. You, you are in a, a, a position of humility. And then I reminded you last week, uh, later on, well, he says it in uh, chapter 7, Stephen does, but then later Paul asserts it in chapter 17 of Acts that, that God's not served by human hands. And the reason that God isn't served by human hands is because he, he's God. He doesn't need anything from you. But here's how we tend to look at the world, okay? So um, we think God's sort of in heaven, and even though he's sustaining your very life and upholding all things by the word of his power, um, it's like we think he's wringing his hands, wondering whether or not there's going to be enough of our help to get everything done. And that's, that's the exact opposite picture that we're supposed to think of God as. We think of serving God like we think of working a job. We think of serving uh, in, in the church as though there's, there's different uh, positions that we could take and there's like a help wanted sign maybe that's, that's hung outside the door and it says help wanted and without you this thing won't, won't happen. You know, God just can't get, get this done. And um, I want to shift your thinking on what it is that God wants or needs, if you want to say it that way, wants or needs from you in your service. But instead of thinking of it as a help wanted sign, what if instead it said help given? Help given sign. So uh, I've written a short parable for you, and it combines some of the best elements of Jesus' parable, so I won't take credit for any of it, but just listen to my story this morning, okay? There's once uh, a very poor man. And he had barely scratched out an existence for quite a while. And so he didn't have a house or money or food or friends or family. And one day he's walking through town just trying to figure out how he's going to get a meal. And he sees a man coming towards him into town and he's carrying a sign and it says, help given. Well, of course, that would intrigue your curiosity, intrigued his. And he said, perhaps this is the answer to all of my problems. And indeed it was. Unable to resist, he comes up to the man and he says, can I have some help? He says, absolutely. So the man takes him back to his house. He gives him a plot of land. He teaches him to farm. And a short while later, this man has now built a house. He's got crops coming up. Uh, a, little, a little while later, he's got a family and friends. He's got a house. He's got a business now. Uh, he's got everything that he never thought he would have, all because of the kindness of this man. And one day he's out tending his crops, busying himself. And the man he sees is going back, headed back into town with a sign again that says, help given. Of course, he, he busies himself, hurries over and says, I just want you to know I'm so thankful that you have allowed me this opportunity. I want you to see all that I've done with it. I've, I've grown these crops. I, I have a family. I have kids now. And uh, I just want you to know this opportunity has been amazing. I couldn't have done this without you. What can I do to thank you? And the man says, well, I'm headed to town now. You can go make your own sign and come with me and do the same thing for someone else. Well, the man, of course, looks around and he says, well, I have all these crops to attend to. And if I don't get this load of grain to town before 10 o'clock, I'll only get half price for it. And what about my kids? And what will I do if I can't send them to school? And what about my wife? She'll wonder where I'm at. And of course, he's got a million reasons why now is not the time to go and help someone else. Well, this scene repeats over and over for years. And the man keeps inviting him to town, but always he has another excuse why there's some other obligation. Surely God would not want me to forsake my duty here at home. I have to take care of all of these things. I have this business. I need to steward what I've been given. And you can see how suddenly stewarding the thing that you've been given can be contorted to serve yourself. Do you see it? Okay? And so he's grateful for the opportunity so long as it doesn't cost him anything from his opportunity. 
Do you see it? The rest of the passage in 1 Peter, after he says, you're a holy, uh, a chosen people, a holy priesthood, a, a nation that, to serve God, uh, down at the bottom it says this, but you've also been called to something else, to suffer. What? Okay, part of your calling to serve God is suffering, not because God loves it when you're in pain, but because when you endure trials for him, and when you give and you endure, it shows his faithfulness and that you aren't the source. My Power is made perfect in your weakness. And we never want any weakness. And so God's power is never seen. We're totally content to be self-sufficient and show people our self-sufficiency. We work so hard and we're so proud of what we've done. But the fact is we wouldn't have done any of that without God. So God's not after our, our misery or our pain or experiencing failures, but rather that his, his goodness is seen through the, the, the breaking and, and his faithfulness in our lives, okay? Well, um, you've been called to a duty. And um, in Matthew chapter nine, flip over there with me, if you would. I guess, Matthew chapter nine, Jesus tells um, a familiar parable. And I want you to see what he says to the disciples. Right at the end, in verse 35, Jesus uh, went throughout all the uh, cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing every disease, every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and they were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, this is still a parable, even though it's very short. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There's, there's work to be done. And uh, you can see it's, it's, uh, it's, the field is ripe. There's, there's lots to do. And you need to do something about it. But the striking thing about his, his first statement is not that he says, so disciples, get out there and get into the harvest. He asked that we would pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out into his harvest. So just... I want to first realign our thinking on what Jesus is asking for us to do in this, um, this short parable and then uh, move it forward because we tend to truncate it right at the end there in verse 38. So the first thing is there's, an, there's a harvest. It's, it's already abundantly um, supplied. We think our, our task is to go out there and create a harvest and it's not. God is the Lord of the harvest. He, he is the one that produces fruitfulness but our, our faithful diligence to um, to play a real role in that is not to be missed. It doesn't say, well, pray that God will go harvest his own harvest or something, right? There, there's an active role that you have. There's a participation in there. But recognize, first of all, that the, the harvest already exists. You have real participation in that. God doesn't reap it without you. He does not reap the harvest without us. Um, but one, uh, we have a couple of problems. One is not seeing the harvest at all. I think there's a problem. Uh, he says the same thing when he's, um, he's talking to the woman at the well and uh, all of the people come back out of the city after the woman's gone back into the city. She, remember, she tells everybody, this, this man is the Messiah. He's told me all that I've done. And this whole town is now coming back out to the well. And then he tells the disciples, look up. The fields are ripe with harvest. Like he sees all the people that are coming. Here they are. But it's a mixed bag. The, the, the harvest isn't curated. We find that out in another par parable. There's wheat and there's weeds. You don't know who's who. 
Just go out there and reap. That's your job, to go out there and reap and, and let God sort out who is who. So, um, so not seeing the harvest is one problem, but not seeking God for more workers is the other problem. And the workers are the harvest, and the harvest are the workers. And the more you harvest, the more workers there are. And the more workers there are, the more harvest will be given. I, I see some like, wait, wait, say that again? Okay, so I'll say it again. <laughs> who is the harvest? Those that are being rescued and, 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 and receiving grace and understanding the gospel, being brought into the kingdom. And what is it that God wants those people that are rescued and saved by the gospel and brought into the kingdom to do? Well, to go out and to go get more harvest. So the harvest are the workers. And the workers are the harvest. So the more workers that come in, the more harvest can come in. And the more harvest come in, the more workers there will be. Do you understand? Okay. So participating in the harvest is important. But not seeking God for more workers is part of the problem. We tend to go, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, let's get out there and get it done without ever seeking God. To, to, and he says, the, the word here is to, uh, it says to send out, but the word is much more forceful than that. It's literally like to expel into. But let God expel you into where it is that he wants to send you. Ex expelling workers into the harvest and, um, and that we pray and we seek God to do that because only God will call the laborers. Because only God can produce the harbor, harvest. So the presupposition of the text is we do not recruit people into God's service. We simply bring in who God already has. Now, this may beg some other deeper theological questions that I do want to get to next week. But we're supposed to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers into the field. And this may not sound particularly like obligatory to you. Well, maybe some people are workers and men. Maybe some people aren't. Well, that's the problem. Look at the end of verse 38. There's a whole nother chapter of Matthew. And believe it or not, that chapter division was not there originally in the text. And the problem is that right after that, he commissions the 12 and he sends them out. And he tells you, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Turn the page, if it must, uh, to get to what it says. He says, um, Jesus sends out the 12 in verse 5. The 12 he sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, but enter the town of Samaria. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you proclaim, go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so on. And then verse 16, persecution will come. That should sound a whole lot like what happened in 1 Peter chapter 2. You're called, you're chosen, but guess what? You're also called to suffer. There's going to be hard things. And part of laboring for the Lord is enduring those things for his namesake. So pray that the workers come, but also be one of the workers. The main focus of our service is collecting the harvest, the gospel work, increasing the word of God in prayer. Faithful service in your whole life, wherever, whomever, however God places you. You see this happening now for Stephen, in Stephen's life, in the fact that... Uh, well, now I got to flip and so do you. Back to Acts chapter six. It says, Stephen's full of grace and power in verse eight. He's doing great signs and wonders. Where is he doing them? If you, if you were fast enough to flip back, where is he doing them at? Among the people, it says, not in the church. He's doing them among the people. Then in verse nine, and some of those who belonged to the synagogue, the synagogue was not church. It was, but it wasn't. It was a place to study, but it was also a place to gather with people who were like you. And that's why the synagogue of the freedman was the place. He kind of just did life. These are people who he identified with, his ethnic people. 
the synagogue of the freemen is called, and he's in there, and he's contending now for the gospel, and he becomes so eloquent, listen, that they cannot withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, not just in the church, but everywhere he was. And so God uses the fullness of Stephen's life, what we're going to find out as we read the rest of the story, not only to, to uh, witness for him in spectacular fashion, but he ends his life right at the end of his greatest work, if you want to say that way. His life's work was serving God, but it was very short-lived. He was a, a burning star, as they say, right? And it went out. And, but he served every purpose he must, and he's stoned. He becomes the first martyr of the church. Now, God has not just commissioned some people into his service. He's commissioned all of us into his service. But we, we tend to relegate that. Well, only these seven are appointed. I think these seven are highlighted for us to see that they serve, yes, a, a specific position in the church, but all of their lives were for the service of the gospel. You can work all day. You can work all week and, and never have worked for your boss. Like you can go into your job and maybe you have like one of those computer jobs and you can mess around on Facebook and check the news and, you know, busy yourself writing some, some calendar notes or whatever and never have worked one single minute for the purposes of your employer. Yes, you see that? You, you could busy yourself doing a lot of things but never have worked for the person that you're supposed to be working for at your job. Maybe you're paid to do something, uh, but you're self-employed. And so you think, well, I don't work for somebody else. I work for me. Um, so, so who or why you work becomes crucial to understanding what it is um, that you're doing and how you can serve God and how you can serve God with your whole life and not just what it is that you do for a job or if you're retired or fill in the blank there, right? So um, we think, and we're very good at this, um, I will justify all of the things that I think I need to do and call them service to God because I think he would dislike it if I forsook those things. And here's what I mean by that. When I told my little parable, right, the, the guy had a, a million good excuses why it wasn't his time to go extend the same opportunity that was given to him to other people. And they were, if, you, if you just analyze those in and of themselves, you go, well, yeah, you're not supposed to abandon your wife or not tell her where you're going or whatever. And you're not supposed to forsake your kids. And, and yeah, like you, you should have good business practices. And like, so we have a lot of good reason why we can point to our integrity or maybe some uh, other command in the scripture. And we say, and this is the reason why I ought not to serve God here with my whole life. And so we can have a lot of excuses. Well, there's a way to serve that is, is not lasting, that is superficial. And um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, everything that you do, everything that you've put your hand to, proverbially, um, will be tested with fire. And everything that does not last is worthless. And so when you look back at your day, or your week, or your life, and you say, here's all the things that I've done, and you put those in a pile, and then they get burned up, the question is like, well, did you do anything that amounted to anything of service to God? Let me read it to you, just so you can have the full context. In 1 Corinthians 3, I'm going to start in verse 10. It says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master, I, 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 I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. Let, no one can lay a foundation other than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the foundation. And yet here, 
Paul is calling himself a worker. I'm building on that and so are other people. But there is no other foundation. Verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. That means it'll be exposed for what it'll become evident what it actually is because the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives... He will receive a reward. If anyone works, if anyone's work is, uh, is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I just want you to hear that really clearly. You can work a lifetime, put it all in the fire, and it'll all be gone. Now, you might be saved, but every ounce of effort was worthless. Do you see it? So all the justifications are also pointless on why you ought not to serve God with whatever it is that he's given you. He goes on after that, verse 16. Do you not know you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, he'll, uh, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is the priesthood language. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool. Wise in this age means you know how to save up and store up and, and, you, and you know how to work hard to benefit yourself. You're one of those kind of people. People celebrate you because of all that you have and you're wise in this age, but you're a fool for the age to come. Paul counsels us, let, let him become a fool so that he may become wise for the wisdom of the world is folly to God. It is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They're futile. You think that you're working for God by doing all the things, but you're really working for you. You think and you, and you contort and you manage, but at the end of the day, when it comes time to carry the sign, you're really working for you. And you're working in the wisdom of the world. So the question is futile work or lasting work? Working on building things that actually serve God that will last. Those are the, 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 the precious stones. And um, when, when Paul's talking about his joy, we talked about this last week. When he says, you are my joy. He's talking to the churches. All the people that have come because of his service and his work and his, his tears and his blood and his sweat for the gospel, for Jesus' name. Right? He says, you're my joy. You're my reason. And then he also says, you're my, you're my resume, if you will. You're my letter of recommendation. You are the accreditation for all that I've done being something that lasts, not something that will be burned up. Does it make sense? The, the lasting things are the people. Those are the things that won't be burned up. There's nothing that you can acquire or do for God that's temporal, that lasts into eternity. This is not meant to be a political statement or to hurt your feelings, but it might do both. This week it was announced that inflation hit 8.3%. Without you making a decision or lifting a finger, one month of your salary was gone. If you do the math, what, one month is 8.3% of, of a year, okay? So 8.3% inflation means that you've worked one month for free. You took a hit without ever thinking about it. And so whatever's blood, sweat, and tears, and labor, did you produce anything in that that mattered for eternity? Like, like reconcile that thought for a minute. You took one month of deduction without ever making a decision and, and, and instead of um, being willful and working for God, we, we kind of tend to float and then something like that gets taken away and we just think, well, I got to work all the more harder, I guess. For, for what? Work for things that last. I'm going to end with this. It's um, a portion of a parable and I'm going to pick up this parable next week um, 
to, to, to continue the thought. But in Luke chapter 14, he tells this parable in, uh, it's recorded in three gospels, but this um, version of it is good. So it's the parable of uh, the wedding feast. And um, in Luke 14, I'll read in verse 16 and on. Um, all, all these are, uh, the, the, a man, his son is being married. He, he's going to throw a, a great party. And uh, he said, a man once gave a great banquet and he invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. If you want to hear that invitation, it says, come, everything is, is prepared for you. It's given to you. There's, you. It costs you nothing. Just show up. That's grace. It's all provided. You don't have to, you just show up. It's all for you. The banquet is ready, but they all alike began to make excuses. Now listen to the excuses and why they make them. The first one said, I bought a field. I have to go out and I have to see it. Verse 19, and another said, I have five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and he reported these things to the master. And then the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servants, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes and the cities and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. There's two parts of this I want you to notice. What are all of their excuses about? Commerce, stuff of the world. I've got a wife, I've got it. Now you're like, that's my reason to mistreat my lady. No, okay? That's not what he's saying. The point is, you're concerning yourself and busying yourself with the cares of the world. And these guys say, I can't come to your feast. I've got all these other things to do. They have a lot of excuses of, of self-service. And so he says, you know what? Go out and invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame because those are the people that don't have the other distractions. They won't make an excuse about the ways that they need to serve themselves and create for themselves. They'll come to the banquet and they do. So this morning, the challenge is fairly simple. <laughs> and um, I want you to see it for what it is. You, you've been called You've been included, you've been gifted, you've been equipped, you've been obligated. Like all of these things are, are, are asking you, are you stewarding what God has given you in a way that reflects faithful service to him? That's the question. What is Christian service? It is living your life for God's glory. And it's, um, it is every time that you have the sign to take, even if it costs you part of your land and some of your crops and your business struggles a little bit. To this you've been called. Father, I pray this morning that we hear the challenge as much as the invitation, that we don't work from our own supply, but we work from grace.